Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and we are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. Glad you are with us. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little late getting on here because, uh, you know, it's just one of those mornings when uh, I was ready to fire it up, and suddenly my microphone wasn't working, and lots of other technological things. Did a quick restart, and uh, I think everything is going. So if you could just give me a little uh, thumbs up or. <laughs> Some indication that you are hearing me and seeing me and things are working as they're supposed to on your end. I would appreciate that. Uh, glad you're with us. We're going to continue our study of Romans 7 and Galatians 5. need to remind you of that because we... Uh, we all right, I got a thumbs up from Paul. Thank you. Uh, we are into Romans 8 and my plan is to get through... Uh, the, the main things I want to talk about Romans 8 uh, today or tomorrow, we'll see how it goes, and then switch to Galatians 5 because Galatians 5 is uh, Paul making basically the same point that, uh, that, we, that we see here in Romans 7, and that's important because in Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the deeds of the flesh. I think we often misunderstand what that's all about. So if you're with us uh, on the Romans 7, you'll see where we're going, Galatians 5. So uh, we're going to do that. But uh, I've got enough feedback. I think when we finish this series, get through Galatians portion in, in chapter 5, and, you know, we'll, like I always do, we'll, we'll surround it a little bit with the, the nearby context. I think we're going to come back and walk through Romans 9 through 11. There seems to be enough interest there. Because uh, there's a lot of lot of good stuff there, and I want to show you even today, in preparation for that, that Romans nine through eleven is not a new context. Hopefully, you've seen that we cannot divide the book of Romans into something like chapters one through four deal with justification, and five through eight deal with sanctification. And 9 through 11 goes through Israel. That is not how the book of Romans is laid out. And we get to all kinds of problems when we look at the book of Romans that way. Uh, Paul is writing to a group of Christians. And one of the major questions that Christians had to deal with in the first century, and it continues to be questions that come up for us, is what about the Jews? What about these people who were God's chosen people all through the Old Testament? They were the covenant people. God gave the Mosaic covenant, the law, the prophets, all of those were for Israel. And they are uh, the centerpiece of the Old Testament in many ways. And God made grand promises to Israel. If you read through the prophets you'll see that over and over again, God says to Israel, I will restore you. I will bring you back to Zion. I will send David and he will reign and rule over Israel and all the nations will stream to Jerusalem and stream to Zion. Right? We have all these great promises and yet none of that has been fulfilled, which leads a lot of Christians, uh, those in what we call the dispensational theology camp, to believe that there is a future for geopolitical Israel where they are uh, the recipients of all of those promises. And if that doesn't happen, then God is not a promise keeper, that kind of thing. And let me show you real quick. Um, this is th That's where this is heading in Romans 9. The key 
statement in Romans 9 is verse 6. Let me show you. For it is not as though the word of God has failed. That is the key to understanding so much of what Paul is teaching in Romans. Has God failed to do what he promised to do with Israel? And the reason that question even comes up is because the vast majority of Jews of Jesus' day rejected him. They clamored for his crucifixion. And even since then, most Jews do not accept Jesus as Messiah. And so Paul has to answer that question and deal with it all the way through. And we will come back, (laughs) preview, we'll come back and look at that down the road. Uh, But I want us to see here in chapter 8, he's still talking about the Jews, which he started in chapter 7. And actually, he started it back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For who? For the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he continues to talk about the law and the Jewish people and circumcision all the way through the book of Romans. This is not a theology book divided up in justification, sanctification, Israel, and then practical stuff. That's not what's going on here. All right, so with all of that, let's get back to uh, chapter 8. Now, here's how I want to introduce this question, or introduce this section with a question. Got your thinking caps on? I hope you're thinking. I hope you're ready. Maybe you had an extra cup of coffee. It'd be good for you. Think through this question. If you as a Christian are forgiven in Christ, if you have been justified, why will you still physically die? Martin Luther said, Justification by faith alone, sola fide, is the article on which the church stands or falls. And all of us who have been influenced by Reformed theology, we know that. Sola fide, right? It's the, it's the one hill you're going to die on. And I'm not in any way discounting the importance of faith alone, justification by faith alone. I believe the Bible teaches we are declared righteous before God by faith alone, not by our works, not by keeping the law, none of those things. Okay, so you today stand before God justified. The Reformed group just hammers that home. You are justified. You are justified. You are justified. You are declared righteous. Okay, so you're righteous. Why will you still die? See, this is where we have to be careful not to become better theologians than God, not to let our systematic theology drive our interpretation of the Scripture. We have to always look at what the scripture says and wrestle with it rather than what our theology says. Here's a second, uh, I don't know if it's exactly a question, but a point to set up our discussion here today. Because our theology so drives our thinking to... Uh, to see that Jesus came to save us from hell and to take us to heaven, um, we, we miss what the Bible actually says. Now, again, I have to qualify this because people hear what I don't say all the time. I do believe that the Bible teaches very clearly the sober truth that it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. And at that judgment... All who are outside of Christ will be sentenced to uh, eternal judgment. It'll be torment. It'll be, it'll be awful. It's, not, it's unthinkable, really, to consider what's going to happen to those who are not in Christ. 
I believe the Bible does teach that and even uses the term hell to describe it and the lake of fire and, and other things, wrath, those kind of things. So please hear me. I'm not denying and certainly not minimizing that. But what I want us to see is that's not, that's not the, how do I even say this without sounding awful, uh, heretical even, that's not the main story. Um, and, and, and it seems like that has to be the main story. If there is this lake of fire that people are going to be thrown into, how can that not be the main story? But, but it's not the main story. See, what that tends to do for us is remove us from, from life, from living, from seeing the intrusion of physical death into this great life that God has created. When we cast everything into heaven and hell, we now really have no category, no biblical category for life and for death and resurrection. The thought of a new heavens and new earth isn't all that important to us because, well, at least we don't go to hell and we get to go to heaven. But that's, that's missing the point of the scripture in, in many, many ways and missing the point of what Jesus came to do. Think about what Paul calls death in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls death an enemy. He's not talking about eternal death there. He's talking about physically dying, your life coming to an end. He calls it the last enemy. It is a great enemy. It became an enemy the moment that Adam ate of that fruit that God told him not to. God said, on the day you eat of it, you will die. And as we've seen in Romans 5, death now entered the whole realm of mankind. It's the intrusion that came in, and Paul calls it the last enemy. Jesus is right now putting to death his enemies. He is destroying his enemies. He's, he's putting them as a footstool under his feet. The last one he's going to destroy is death. It's an enemy. If you are forgiven, why will you still die? All right, so kind of framework that, uh, frame our conversation here as we get into chapter 8. We need to keep this in this death category. Um, mm. So Lon answers the question. Let me show you. We all die because of Adam's sin. Christ's work covers our sin. That's a very astute observation. Did the rest of you see that? Is Lon right in light of our context, in light of what we've seen in Romans so far? In Adam, we're all declared sinners and we're all going to die. The wages of sin is death. Christ covers our sin. I think there's something to that. That still maybe raises the question, uh, isn't death also um, a result of our sin? Anyway, I'm, uh, l just let's let that hang out there for a minute 
and let's uh, let's look at the text. Very astute observation. I think you are I think you're reading the Bible well here, Lon. Good work. Okay, so here's uh, here's what I, I want to again continue to frame Romans eight because we we so easily bring our theology to the text rather than let the text set, say what it says. So in chapter eight, verse ten, this is where part of this is heading. Paul says, "If Christ is in you." Even that is interesting because he's been focusing so much on us being in Christ. Now he says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. Even before we finish the sentence, what does he mean by that? Your body is dead. The two options are the body's desires for sin are dead. But that doesn't make real sense in the context or with his actual phrasing, right? No, the body is dead. You, your body is still sentenced to death because of Adam. Yet the spirit is, and here's where the NAS does not help us. This word alive, you see there's a, a little one here. Uh, that shows that there is a footnote. And that footnote, can I pull that up easily? Uh, I can't pull that up easy. That footnote says, or life, or literally life. Uh, the spirit is life, is what the text actually says. The body is dead. Uh, the spirit is life. One of them is a adjective, dead. Your body is dead. It's describing your body. It's dead because of sin. Your, the spirit is life. I believe this is Holy Spirit. When we get there, I'll show you because of righteousness. Let me show you one more thing in chapter 8, a little bit later. Paul's going to conclude this whole section with, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, delivered him to what? To death, right? How will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You are elect. God is the one who justifies. He's declared you righteous. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who, is, uh, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? These are all things in this life that threaten our lives who, to kill us. Death is the enemy in all of these things that can lead us to death and are a result of pain and distress in this life. They won't separate us from this one who died for us. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What does it mean that we conquer? It means we're going to be raised again. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, none of those things, neither height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And he goes right into chapter 9 about the Jews. Okay, so you may be thinking, uh, that's too much, that's, it's too, what, what's all that mean? Well, we'll get there. I just want you to see 
that this whole context of chapter 8 is still talking to the Jews, though the application and implication are for all, all of us as well. He's still talking to, about Jews and oh, uh, being rescued from the realm of the flesh and law and sin and death and resurrection life is is key. So one more thing before we get there. I know some of you are like, ah. If you're driving, uh, you can't see this chart, but let me let me, uh, let me show you here. Here's this chart, and I've added some things. So Paul has been talking about two realms. On the left side here, one realm is Adam, law, and now we're adding flesh. This is all the realm for the Jews under the law. Adam, law, flesh. Sin reigns in that realm. Condemnation, which is death, physical death, is in that realm. One trespass, led, one trespass by Adam led to sin and condemnation, death reigns, all those things on that side. If you are a believer, if the Jew becomes a believer in Jesus, he transferred from that realm into this other realm, which is Messiah, spirit, grace reigns, righteousness, life, and so on. Two realms, all the way through, back to chapter 5, verse 12. Two realms. And in chapter 6, he describes this left column without specific reference to the Jew, and he talks about uh, sin reigning, death reigning, those kind of things. But now, starting in chapter 7, verse 1, he's been honing in on the Jew and adding the flesh and the law of Moses into that left side. And the spirit is on the right side. So it's, you know, the, uh, the, the Lutherans, uh, the Lutheran theologians, and this came from Luther himself, uh, they love to talk about law-gospel, 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 this, this separation of these, these two um, messages of the, of the Scripture almost, law-gospel. That's not the, the dichotomy the Bible gives. I don't think we ever see law and gospel in contrast. What we see is law and spirit, and that's what Paul's getting at here. All right. So let me, let me walk through some of what we're talking about here in chapter 8. So, <laughs> huge introduction. Our time is almost up. Obviously, we're going to have to come back to some of this tomorrow. So, chapter 8, verse 1. Condemnation then, we saw this translation. I translated it for you uh, literally last week. Condemnation then is now nothing. The sentence of death, this death penalty, is now nothing for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are in the right column. That I showed you. Why not, Paul? Why is this death penalty, this this being condemned to death, why is that nothing if you're in Christ? For, he says, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's playing on the word law here. He started this in chapter 7. Back here at the end of 7, he said, his conclusion, on the one hand, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. And remember, that's him as a Jew saying, I I see the law, it's a good law, I should obey the law, but I can't. Why not? Because on the other hand, I am serving my flesh or or serving um, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. He's been personifying sin as though sin is a Thing that has power. Sin reigns. Sin rules. Sin enslaves. Now sin has a law. Sin is, is uh, exercising this law over the flesh of the Jew, saying, you must submit to me, master sin. Verse 2, the law, again playing on that word law, of the spirit of life has freed the Jew 
from the law of sin, this master sin who is saying, you must obey me, the spirit of life has freed the Jew, the believing Jew from that. Now, again, this is also true of, for those of us who are Gentiles. It's the same point he made in chapter 6, but he's still talking here to the Jews. So the, the application is for all of us, but, but keep it in its context. And that spirit of life has set you free from death. The law condemned the Jew to death. But the spirit, God's spirit, is a spirit of life. Resurrection life. Death is not the final blow. Death is not the victor ultimately here. Yeah, the Jew, the believing Jew will still die just like you, all of us will. But the spirit brings life. You are freed from that realm of sin and death by the spirit. And now verse three, and this is, this is really hard sledding in English. I mean, in Greek. And then NAS has a pretty good job of this, but it's a, it's a bear. It, there, there's phrases that you know don't have a subject and verb, and it doesn't exactly tell you what it's tying back to. And um, but I'm going to use the NAS here. It's a pretty, pretty good uh, capture of what the of the Greek is getting at. So he begins verse three by this statement. Literally, um, the the law is unable to do something. And that's how the NAS translates it. What the law could not do. The law lacked ability. The law was powerless to do something. And it was weak, he says. The law was weak through the flesh. So the question is, what could the law not do? What did the law want to do that it couldn't do? He's, he's again personifying law as though the law is a thing that can act. And, and it can't, right? But that's what he's been doing all through this uh, chapter 7, personifying law, personifying flesh, personifying sin. So here the law wants to do something. What does it want to do? It wants to give life. It wants to declare the Jew righteous and give him life. Uh, let me, let me uh, pull up this, uh, this verse in chapter 7 that we, that we saw here. Uh, he says... Uh, back in verse nine, chapter seven, verse nine, I was once alive from the law. This is probably talking about his, you know, his pre-bar mitzvah era. He's living life and then boom, he becomes a son of the commandment. He's bar mitzvahs. He, he's now obligated to uh, keep the law here. And the commandment came and the sin became alive. Again, personifying sin. And I died. And the commandment, which was to result in life, it was given to give me life. The law, if you can, Join in with his personification here. The law wanted to give the Jew life and declare him righteous, but it couldn't. It was powerless to do that because of the flesh, because of that old man circumcised, now bound to the law, and which enslaved the Jew to sin. Therefore, the commandment, the law could not give the Jew life life. And then he makes a quick distinction. It's not actually the law's fault. It's sin. Sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and the law killed me. And that's why he asked this question that we saw in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? No, it wasn't the law. It was sin. Okay? So that's what he's getting at. He's coming back to that. The law could not declare the Jew to be righteous, and the law could not give him life. It could only condemn him to death. What the law could not do, God did. 
And the heart of verse three in the Greek is God condemned sin in the flesh. This master sin, this sin that is exercising this law, this enslavement of the Jew, God condemned master sin. Right back in chapter seven, he, he, he talked about this law of sin, uh, which was in his members. He, he sees this law in the members of his body. It's waging war against the law of his mind. His mind is saying, I should obey God. His, his flesh, his, his body is saying, no, I can't. He's a prisoner of this law of sin in the members of his body, and it condemned him. God condemned that master sin in the flesh. How did he do that? He sent his own son in the likeness of sin and of flesh. Literally is how it reads here. Sinful flesh gets at the idea. Jesus obviously was not enslaved to master sin. That's why he uses the word likeness. Jesus was sent concerning sin literally here. That's why Jesus came. He took on the body of sin like a Jew, born under the law, circumcised, required to keep the law, and God condemned master sin, this enslaving power. He condemned it in the flesh of Jesus, who again was under the law, who was circumcised, who who acted and lived as, as the Jew did. <clears throat> he, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, was not enslaved to sin. He didn't serve master sin. He obeyed God perfectly. But he was in the likeness of the Jew under that master. And God in his flesh condemned this master sin so that he would no longer have power. So that, verse 4, the requirement of the law. And that, again, is a very hard phrase. It's it's this word, it, it it's justification, it's righteousness, it's, it's all things that, that the Jew didn't have because he was a sinner, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled, not kept. It's not as simple as, as law-keeping. The word fulfill means to fulfill prophecy. It means to, to fulfill the, the, the purpose of something. This is very similar to the way that Jesus used the word in Matthew 5. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you were with us in that series, we spent some time there. That does not mean simply that Jesus kept the law or that he observed the law, but the law had a prophetic function pointing toward what righteousness really looks like. It looks like Jesus. Paul's using the same word here. Uh, The requirement, the ordinance, the justification, the righteousness of the law could be fulfilled. It it predicted something. Now, the law condemned the Jew, and it couldn't give righteousness. It couldn't fulfill the purpose of bringing righteousness. But because Jesus came, for those of us, the Jews, he says, who do not walk according to the flesh, we'll come back to that in a moment, the, the requirement of the law could be fulfilled because Jesus came and took upon himself the condemnation, the death uh, uh, in the likeness of that flesh. And God condemned master's sin. And now he fulfilled that righteousness in the believing Jew. And now notice how he describes us, 
those believing Jews, those who do not walk according to the flesh, those who do not walk in that left column. Walking is a, is a Greek concept of, of lifestyle. This is, this, is, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is where we live. This is the, the area in which we walk. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, those who are not in Adam, who are not under the law, who are not in this realm of the flesh where sin reigns, where there's condemnation and death and all of that, that's who he's describing. It's a realm. This is not a nature. This is not a sinful nature in the Jew or the Gentile or you or me. That's not what he's talking about. In no way is he talking about nature. You do not have a sinful nature if you're in Christ. You still sin, and he'll address that, but he's not talking about having an old nature and a new nature and all that. He's talking about realms, and the flesh is the realm of Adam, law, flesh, sin, death. He says, if you walk in that realm, you're not a Christian, but if you are in the realm of the Spirit, if you walk in the realm of the Spirit, the the right-hand column, I took it away too soon, that right-hand column of Messiah, Spirit, grace, righteousness, all that, if you died to the old realm and have been raised to this one, and he's still talking to the Jews here, then the, the requirement of the law of Moses has been fulfilled in those Jews, and they are freed from this realm of sin and death and its law and its control. Now, that's a lot. Our time is up. So, again, I told you I'm going to go slow through this and, and keep keep just walking through the text as we go. Uh, but let that, let that float around, ponder it, think through it, and we'll talk more tomorrow. I see a couple comments here. Let me, uh, let me take a look at uh, what you've said. Uh, Peter Wood says, whoops. Peter says, as I mentioned in a previous post, all man lost the access to the tree of life. And also God has put all creation under corruption. Jesus is the new way to eternal life. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I hope in my previous response, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't disputing it. I, people talk about this tree of life in different ways. Uh, nowhere in this context does Paul actually say there's a tree of life for us to eat. But if what you meant by that is what I'm getting at here, then sounds like we're on the same page. We do see it recur in the book of Revelation, uh, certainly, uh, kind of thing. So I think we're in agreement there. James says, so when we come to faith, we are justified. After this, we are being sanctified up until the grave. Glorification will happen on the other side of the grave one day to all at the same time. Um. Yes, but you're still framing this description in systematic theology terms. You've been taught well. <laughs> you've been you've been well immersed in systematic theology. But the framing of this of this of your statement here is still in a systematic theology perspective. What Paul's getting at here is for the Jew under the law, he is condemned to death, physical death. He's enslaved to sin, which will lead to death. The Spirit has freed him from sin so that now he can please God. Now, if that's what you're calling sanctification, yes. Um, but he's not trying to drive a, a wedge 
between justification and sanctification or make a sharp distinction. He's not using those terms at all. Okay, and James has a follow-up here. John MacArthur would be proud. Yes. <laughs> if you've learned all this from John MacArthur, um, he, he has taught you well. Yes, because he is, he is a dyed-in-the-wool systematic theologian. I love MacArthur from this standpoint. He He's one of the greatest champions for the trustworthiness of the Scripture that we have seen in, in the last, you know, 100 years. But he is very much steeped in systematic theology. And I believe that he gets some texts wrong uh, because he sees everything through a systematic grid rather than exegesis and pulling out what is there. And I realize I'm inviting lots of criticism to criticize MacArthur. Uh, please take that as a, as a, I appreciate what he's done. I value his input. I do think he's dis, he's wrong on some things and he thinks I'm wrong on some things. That's just how this works. Right. Uh, Dale says, I have, I has a man from the church of Christ put forward the idea that man has was made to die naturally, and that's why God had the tree of life in Eden. His conclusion was that God meant spiritual death. Uh, let, me, let me see if I can make sure what you're saying here. The idea that man was made to die naturally, uh, well, if I'm reading that correctly, man was not made to die naturally. Um, I don't see any indication of that. Uh, where does the scripture say that? Romans 5, we've been through, right? Romans 5, 12 and following says that death was the sentence for Adam's sin. That's not natural. That's that's punitive. Uh, his conclusion was that man, that God meant spiritual death. Yeah. And again, the the question I would ask is where, where does the text say that? Where does the scripture say that the punishment on Adam's sin was spiritual death? Certainly Romans 5 through 8 Let's just keep it here. Romans 5 through 8 is talking about physical death. He already dealt with the eternal condemnation in chapter 2. And I hope you were with me at the beginning. I, I do not deny the, the eternal judgment. I, I believe the Bible does teach it. But here, Romans 5 through 8, the condemnation is physical death. All right. Well, our time has passed. Uh, keep going slow through this. Um, and... Uh, uh, wrestle with it, think through it. We'll come back tomorrow and I'll give you less, <laughs> less of the general overview and we'll continue to walk through the text. But this is important uh, to, to see what Paul is doing here. So have a great blessed Monday uh, and we'll see you tomorrow. God bless.